Thanks for being here this Sunday, this summer Sunday at Lighthouse. My name's Anthony. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad to have you here this Sunday. If you've been with us through this year, we've been going through the Bible, or as we've called the series, the books, because literally the term the Bible means the books, just all the collection of books that makes up our Bible. And so we've started at the beginning of this year, at the beginning of the Bible, we started in Genesis through the first five books, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and those are essentially the story of how God started everything according to that, and then chose a man, chose his family to then start a nation that would eventually bless the world through Jesus. So we've been just kind of following the story of this nation as it's developed, and we've followed it all the way as they went into slavery in Egypt. Then as Moses, the deliverer, led them out to the edge of the promised land, then they went into the promised land through the military leadership of Joshua. And then as we've seen the last few weeks, as they kind of settled and all that was mostly done, they kind of formed this loose confederation that wasn't really governed well. They were all kind of self-governing and it didn't turn out well. And they would wander away from what they were supposed to do. God would raise up a judge and then they'd turn it around for a while and then fall back. And it was this back and forth cycle. All the way through the last one that we saw, Samuel, last week. And at the end, if you remember, if you were here last week, the people went to Samuel and said, we're done with this whole system. God seems to have this, but it's kind of cramping our style because we don't like that we get in trouble, but we don't really want to do it God's way either, so give us a king. Everybody else around us has a king. We want a king. We want him to be the judge. We want him to be the military leader. We just want to know who it is and not wait on God. So Samuel says to God, I don't like this. God says, I don't either, but it's not about you. It's about me, but they don't want me give them a king, warn them what's going to happen. And so we're transitioning from this period into what's called the monarchy, just the ruling of a king in Israel. So Samuel the prophet is tasked to find their first king by God. And interestingly enough, if you were here with us a couple weeks ago at the end of the book of Judges, not the end of our series on Judges, we had this whole story about civil war in Israel where there was a very messed up situation in a town called Gibeah that led to just an explosion of upset for some rightful reasons and some wrongful reasons. And 11 of the 12 tribes or clans of the nation of Israel went to war against the one remaining tribe, Benjamin. Nearly wiped them out, there were a lot of crazy things. If you missed that, you can go to our website. It's, the sermon is called The Unraveling. Just everything just kind of falling apart. But God in his wisdom, and I think a little bit in a sense of humor, understands that if this nation is going to come together the way they want it to, they got to come together completely. So Samuel is sent to not just Benjamin, but to that town, Gibeah, and gets a man from there because God wants them all to be together, and he wants to make sure there's healing and just kind of put everything back together. So Samuel anoints a man and decides to get everybody together to anoint him and officially proclaim him king at kind of a group meeting. So he calls all the people together. And I guess the best example that I can think of to try to make sense of it is imagine like something like the NFL draft. If you're not a sports fan, I'm sorry, go with me here for a second. So the NFL draft, you have representatives of all the teams or all the tribes of Israel. You have a bunch of fans, all the other people that came that didn't have to be there but wanted to be there for the show. And Samuel kind of takes the role of commissioner. And they go through this whole elaborate process and narrows it down. And it's almost time 
for Samuel, the commissioner of the prophet, to come out and announce the number one pick in the king draft of Israel. So he comes out to the podium. I don't know if he had a podium, but he came out. He's got the card, and he says, Saul is going to be your king. And we pick up the story there, 1 Samuel 10, 21. And finally, Saul, son of Kish, was chosen from among them. But when they looked for him, he had disappeared. So stick with the draft analogy. The pick is made, the camera switches to the green room where there's the couch and all the family's supposed to be there and they hug and they do all this stuff and he puts on the hat or the crown in the situation, but he's not there. And they look around and they can't find him. Finally, they get so desperate, they decide it's like a bad game of hide and seek that nobody wins. So they ask God and say, where is he? And God has to answer. He's, a, he's hiding among the baggage. So he was so whatever about this, he wasn't in the group, he wasn't around the group, he was hiding where they kept all their stuff. But there's a reason that he couldn't hide among the people because, verse 23, they found him and brought him out, and he stood head and shoulders above anyone else. Makes sense why he couldn't hide. It's kind of hard to hide when you're taller than everybody else. They just look up, hey, there he is. So he's gone, but when they bring him out, he's a large man, We'll see later he's a warrior, so he's a very strong man. And in the verses that we skipped for time, he's a good-looking man. He is straight out of central casting. This is the guy you look at and say, that's a king. So here he is. And he's presented finally to all of Israel. Samuel said to all the people, verse 24, this is the man the Lord has chosen as your king. No one in all Israel is like him. And all the people shouted, long live the king. Exactly, this is what I was talking about. You're old Samuel and you're not cool. He's awesome, he's everything. Then Samuel told the people what the rights and the duties of a king were. He wrote them down on a scroll and placed it before the Lord and sent the people home again. This is very important to realize later on, Saul is king in this first moment, has exactly what he knows what he can and can't do and the people know what they are and are not supposed to do with a king. But there's no palace, there's no, this is a new kingdom. So Saul decides to go back home. I guess that's where the kingdom will head from. So he goes back home to Gibeah. And when he does, verse 26, a group of men whose hearts God had touched went with him. But not everybody was happy. Verse 27, there were some scoundrels who complained. How can this man save us? And they scorned him and refused to bring him gifts. But Saul ignored them. Now, this will come into play later, but I, I don't know what these people had in mind that was whatever. Maybe it was the fact that he was from Benjamin, from Gibeah, and they had residual resentment from this thing that happened. Or, I'm guessing most likely, they want a king. They want somebody, he looks like a king, but he's not acting like they think a king should. We want a king that's going to be our military leader. And when it's just family, he's hiding because he doesn't want the pressure. So they don't like it. But Saul has to decide, what do you do? You're early in your tenure, in your tenure, you just anointed as king, and you've got people that already don't like you. And he just kind of shrugs it off. It'll be okay. I'm not worried about it. He goes home and does his thing. It's interesting that Saul seems so little to want the kingdom, whether it's the responsibility, the pressure, whatever it is, he doesn't seem to hold tightly to it, although that'll change later, as we'll see. But the honeymoon period doesn't last long. Because word spreads, as word does, about what's happening. And the nations around figure out that Israel is trying to turn itself into more of a solid kingdom. So in chapter 11, verse 1, about a month after this, 
King Nahash of Ammon led his army against the Israelite town of Jabesh-Gilead. But all the citizens of Jabesh asked for peace. Please make a treaty with us, and we'll be your servants, they pleaded. All right, Nahash said, but only on one condition. I will gouge out the right eye of every one of you as a disgrace to all Israel. That's just weird. I've heard of sticking it in your enemy's eye, but there's a level that's a little bit too far for me. But apparently this... A was this king's thing. I don't know why he had a thing, but it was also, you can see that he's making the statement. He's like, I don't want to just beat you. I want to beat down everybody around you, and I'm going to show you and your new king, and all y'all are happy, but I'm going to disgrace all of you starting here. So they reach out to him, they respond and say, look, that's kind of strong. We were just hoping you'd tell us to pay taxes or something, but this is extreme. Here's our negotiation. Give us time, time to, you obviously have a problem with all of us, give us time to send word, maybe somebody will help us, and if they don't, we'll do whatever you say, because at least I'll have one eye and be alive versus dead. So they give him the time, and the message is sent out, and it gets all the way to Saul and Benjamin. Verse 6 says, then the Spirit of God came powerfully upon Saul, and he became very angry. He took two oxen and cut them into pieces and sent the messengers to carry them throughout Israel with this message. This is what will happen to the oxen of anyone who refuses to follow Saul and Samuel into battle. And the Lord made the people afraid of Saul's anger, and all of them came out together as one. Side note quickly, if you remember that one I was talking about, this is kind of how that started too. I don't know what it was about people in Benjamin and Gibeah that had a thing about cutting things into pieces to send a message. It apparently was just a cultural custom that I don't understand. If you want to give me a message, just tell me. Don't come to my door with a hacked up piece of animal or something. I'll listen, I promise. But this is their thing, but it worked because they're all afraid and they gather together. They follow their king and they get to the the town. They send out word and say, we're coming. Okay, so... The town says, good, people are coming to help. So they send message to the enemy king. And they say, you know what? Tuesday, 4 o'clock, we're yours. Come on by, and we'll line up. I don't know if it was really Tuesday at 4, but you get the idea. They set a time. So meanwhile, that morning, Saul ambushes the enemy army and wins. It is everything they hoped for. Their new king, a month in, has defeated an enemy. They've rallied together. It's amazing. And as it so often happens, you get done fighting and you're not done fighting because you're still all worked up and you want to find somebody else to kill because you're excited. And so the people exclaim to Samuel after the battle, now where are those men who said, why should Saul rule over us? Bring them here and we will kill them. Like, it's not enough. We're not just killing an enemy. We'll kill our own if they don't like it. Let's go. And Saul has a choice to make. Now he's in a position of strength. Maybe before he ignored him because he's like, I don't know, I was hiding. Maybe they got a point. But now he's won. Now he's in charge and everybody is willing to not just fight with him, but kill for him. What is he going to do? Well, Saul replies, no one will be executed today. For today, the Lord has rescued Israel. Saul says, look, guys, whoa, this isn't about me This is about us as a nation. This is about something that God has done. I don't need vengeance. I've got enough because they know they're wrong. Look at what happened. God has done something. Don't worry about me. I can handle it. 
worry about us as a nation. That's what God put me here to do. And I wish that was just the start of good things for Saul, but unfortunately, in a way, it's a highlight. Over the next few years, the kingdom takes shape. He solidifies his rule, has a family, gets to a spot where he has adult children, and though he's had this military victory, there's another enemy that they can't seem to quite overcome, named the Philistines. They were in a different area, and they were oppressing and had been for years. And they were just an overwhelming force that they struggled to cast off. So with all that's going on, Saul's son, Jonathan, his adult son, is a warrior. Kind of like his dad, but he's a go-getter. Jonathan is not one to just sit back. So he decides he's tired of the oppression, and he's at least going to make some inroads into enemy territory. So he decides to attack a small force in a town and defeats them. He has a victory. But unsurprisingly, the Philistines are not very happy with this development because, all right, we've, we've been on top of you, but maybe we're ruling a little bit too loose. Maybe you've got a little cocky now. You think you can do something. We're fine with you having a king, but now you're coming against us, so we're going to show you how strong we are. So the news travels, chapter 13. All Israel heard the news that Saul had destroyed the Philistine garrison at Geba. Actually, it was Jonathan, but the king gets the credit as always because it's good to be the king, I guess. And the Philistines now hated the Israelites more than ever. So the entire Israelite army was summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. But on the flip side, the Philistines mustered a mighty army of 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and as many warriors as the grains of sand on the seashore. Now, obviously, I don't know what that exact number is. It's a lot. Because apparently, you can count to 3,000 chariots. You can count to 6,000 charioteers. But there's so many people besides that, you're like, no, I'm, I'm done. Sand on the seashore. That's like a number you just throw out when you can't. It's an uncountable number. And understandably, Saul and the rest of Israel are freaked out. They have some people who just decide, we're done, and they go to the enemy side. They have some that were supposed to fight with Saul, and they just hide. But meanwhile, Saul stayed at Gilgal, and his men were trembling with fear. Saul waited there seven days for Samuel, as Samuel had instructed him earlier, but Samuel still didn't come. And Saul realized his troops were rapidly slipping away. So he demanded, bring me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Saul sacrificed the burnt offering himself. I have to take a minute to make sense of this. In their laws, their customs, their, their way of doing things, God had said there are certain rules of a king. We've seen that already. But the priests were the ones that were supposed to handle the burnt offerings. It was their job to do all these things. They were the ones who would offer it to God. It was done in a certain way by certain people. There were rules they had to follow. But Saul's sitting there and saying, I've got a battle to win, and I'm stressed because my men keep leaving me. Samuel said he'd show up today. He's not here yet, and I'm tired of waiting, and I'm stressed, and I'm just going to do it myself. But as often happens in that moment where you've, you know, you've been thinking about doing something, but you haven't decided to do it yet because you're not sure if you can get away with it, so you're waiting, and you're waiting, and you finally, nothing's going to happen. So he does it. Well, sure enough, who shows up as soon as he's done but Samuel, verse 10, just as Saul was finishing with the burnt offering, Samuel arrived. Saul went out to meet him and welcome him, but Samuel said, what is this you've done? Why? Saul replied, I saw my men scattering from me, and you didn't arrive when you said you would. And the Philistines are ready for battle. 
So I said, the Philistines are ready to march against us, and I haven't even asked for the Lord's help. So I felt compelled. I had to. You know, it's, I mean, it's your fault, but I had to offer the burnt offering myself before you came. It's not my fault. I waited. You said seven days. I know you're old. Maybe you didn't have your whatever today. You didn't have your insure. You weren't feeling energetic. You didn't set your alarm clock. But Samuel, you were supposed to be here. You didn't show up. I know that's what God told me. God told me to wait until you got here, but come on. Clock is ticking. People leaving. People ready to kill me. It's your fault. Samuel replies, how foolish. You've not kept the commandment the Lord your God gave you. Had you kept it, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom must end, for the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord's already appointed him to be the leader of his people, because you've not kept the Lord's command. Now this might be a warning, I'm not sure how seriously Saul took the exact extent of it, because his kingdom doesn't end immediately. But there seems to be some room in verses we'll get to later that maybe this is just God's warning and saying, look, I've got people ready to step in if you're not going to do the job right. This, come on, let's turn around and straighten up. Like, if you're not going to do it my way, if you're not going to listen to me, I, don't, I know the situation is bad, but you've got to trust me. Because the situation is bad even if you had your whole army. But you've got to listen. And although Saul had never been more prominent than he was at this moment, yes, he had an enemy, but he was the king. He was secure. He had adult sons ready to take the throne should something happen. He doesn't have enemies within trying to topple him. But although he is prominent, he is less and less of a man inside. And he doesn't handle Samuel's correction very well. And it begins a downward spiral. Samuel leaves. He's not the warrior. He's just the prophet. So then, verse 15, he left Gilgal, went on his way. But the rest of the troops went with Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah in the land of Benjamin. And when Saul counted the men who were with him, he found only 600 were left. This is not good news. Because again, if you remember, we can count to 3,000, we can count to 6,000. So they've got 6,000 charioteers. You're already a 1 to 10 man disadvantage. Plus, you've got all the people you can't count. He's in trouble. So Saul waits unsure, probably trying to process everything that Samuel's told him, wondering if God's with him. He doesn't know, and he waits. But back to Jonathan. Jonathan, again, is not a waiter. He's a warrior. So, verse 1 of chapter 14, one day Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come on, let's go over to where the Philistines have their outpost. But he did not tell his father what he was doing, and that'll come in big later. Verse 6, let's go across through the outpost of those pagans, Jonathan said. Perhaps the Lord will help us, for nothing can hinder the Lord. He can win a battle, whether he has many warriors or only a few. And I think this is a little bit of one of those things, you don't see it, but you see the insight. Because Jonathan's saying, let's go. I'm not worried that we don't have a lot of people, which means all he's been hearing at home from dad in the camp is, there's too many, I don't know what we're going to do. There's too many, I don't know what we're going to do. And Jonathan's like, I don't care. If God's with us, it doesn't matter. I've heard stories of Gideon. He had 300. We've got twice as many. Let's go. Or he's just saying, look, I don't care. If God's not with me, I'm going to die anyway. I'm going out on my terms. Either way, the Lord is not the problem here. We are. And if, he's with, if God is with us, we'll win. If not, we're in trouble, so let's just do this thing. So the two of them go across, and they defeat this outpost. 
Well, it causes a panic in the camp because they know exactly where Saul's men are. And somebody has just defeated somebody else. They're trying to figure out they've got an enemy army. And so Saul finds out, not because Jonathan goes back and reports, but because he sees something. Verse 16, Saul's lookouts in Gibeah of Benjamin saw a strange sight. The vast army of Philistines began to melt away in every direction. Call the roll. Find out who's missing, Saul ordered. And when they checked, they found that Jonathan and his armor bearer were gone. It's probably a pretty quick thing when you've only got to count 600 men. It's like, nope, it's those two. So they found out. So Saul's trying to figure out what to do. He shouts to Ahijah, bring the ephod here. For at that time, Ahijah was wearing the ephod in front of the Israelites. That's a lot of words that basically mean this. Ahijah was essentially Saul's traveling preacher, his traveling priest. Samuel was the main prophet that was known as being the head guy. But Ahijah was, we'd call it a spiritual advisor to the king. And he had an ephod. It was a particular vest that they were supposed to wear, a type of garment that they were supposed to wear. This thing that signified their position as priest. And that was, he would be the one to go, if Saul needed to talk to God, he would talk to Ahijah, who would talk to God and give Saul the answer he needed to follow God. So that's what's going on. But, verse 19, while Saul is talking to the priest, the confusion in the Philistine camp grew louder and louder. So Saul said to the priest, never mind, let's get going. I was like, dude... What are you doing? The last time you didn't wait long enough, the prophet Samuel chewed you out and told you you were in trouble. Wait, just a minute for God to answer. But he doesn't. Despite that, they win a victory. Although it was one that would have been even greater except for a poor decision that we'll see by Saul. All the confusion, the Philistines are just divided. Jonathan's conquering, the people of Israel start to go in. People who had turned and were fighting for the Philistines, now that they saw that, oh, maybe they're not going to win, they turn and start fighting for Saul again. People who were busy hiding, they come out and join the forces, so his force is slowly increasing. But the men of Israel were pressed to exhaustion that day, verse 24, because Saul had placed them under an oath, saying, let a curse fall on anyone who eats before evening before I have full revenge on my enemies. Well, hang on a second, Saul. Why, why is this suddenly about you? Remember the last battle we went to, this, it wasn't about you. It was about the nation. It was about all of us. And you were just leading us. Why is this now? This is personal. This isn't about what's best for all of us. This, Saul, why is it about you? But they didn't question it, so no one ate anything all day even though they all had found honeycomb on the ground in the forest. They didn't dare touch the honey because they all feared the oath that they had taken, except for one person who wasn't there, who didn't hear, who didn't make the oath, Jonathan. Because while dad was all saying, this is my battle, he's like, I, he's fighting the battle. So he doesn't hear about it, doesn't take the oath, he's just going. Well, as they're fighting, he finds some of that same honey and he starts to eat it because he's hungry because he's been fighting all day. And the people around him are like, Jonathan, what are you doing? Your dad said not to. What did dad, what? They said, we can't eat until we win. Like, you know that frustration you have with people who are supposed to know better? What is my dad doing? And he even tells me, he's like, do you see, do you see how much better I feel? 
You're not you when you're hungry. Grab some honey or a Snickers, something. You've got to eat. We've been fighting all day. But they won't do it. The battle gets later and later, and Saul says at one point, verse 36, let's chase the Philistines all night and plunder them until sunrise. Let's destroy every last one of them. And his men reply, probably, I would imagine, leaning on their staff or sitting down, we'll do whatever you think is best. But the priest said, let's ask God first. Remember, you, taught, you were going to do that, and then you ran off, and I've been chasing you this whole time. Maybe ask God. So Saul asked God, should we go after the Philistines? Will you help us defeat them? But God made no reply that day. And I don't think God is being like, you didn't want to talk to me earlier. I don't want to talk to you now. I don't think that's what God's doing because God's bigger than that and he's also smarter than that because God can see what Saul can't in this moment, that his men are spent. They're tired. This will not go well because you can be winning but if you run out of strength, a win turns into a defeat. So God slows them down. Well, while everything is waiting and Saul's like tapping his sundial again because they didn't have watches, it was a sundial. He's trying to figure it out and eventually it, word comes out that Jonathan has done something wrong. So Jonathan gets called to dad's office or his tent or wherever Tell me what you have done, Saul demanded of Jonathan. And I tasted a little honey. A little honey. It's just a little bit on the end of my stick. Does that deserve death? Come on, Dad. It's, Dad, come on. This isn't, I, your, your decision was not great, but we're not even talking a soldier here, Dad. We're talking me. I mean, let's, Dad, talk to me. Really. Yes, Jonathan, Saul said, you must die. Not only that, may God strike me and even kill me if you do not die for this. What a difference in the man that wouldn't take revenge over perceived or real slight when he could now stands face to face with his adult son, the adult son who had started the victory in the first place and can't see past his own blind rage of somehow this disrespect of the Philistines, of somebody breaking an oath, an oath Jonathan didn't even hear, make, or be there for. Yes, you're going to die to his son. What a change. He's not the man that he used to be. Verse 45, but the people broke in and said to Saul, Jonathan has won this great victory for Israel. Saul, usually get credit, but now is the time. You need to know this is not about you. Jonathan did this. Should he die? Far from it. As surely as the Lord lives, not one hair on his head will be touched. For God helped him to do a great deed today. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he was not put to death. Saul has a lot of faults. We're going to keep looking at him. But Saul was wise enough to understand that you can't go to battle with an army that won't listen to you. So Saul called back the army from chasing the Philistines, and the Philistines returned home. Later, in a story we won't see today, this comes back to bite Saul, because he could have had victory, could have had an immense victory that maybe would have delivered them from the Philistines forever. 
But he has to stop because he can't see past his own self. But they have peace for a little while. The Philistines have to recover, so Israel's feeling pretty good about itself, and they're trying to figure out what to do. But they have another enemy, one that's been troubling them for a long time. And they decide to go to battle, but God gives them very specific instructions that he does a couple times we see as we go through. If you were here with us as we talked about Joshua leading them into Canaan, the promised land, in the first place, the first town they come to was Jericho. And God said, when you, I'm going to give you victory, but you're not going to get rich off of this one. This is different. You need to know that this is about you trusting me and I give you the victory and there's a whole story that we got into when we talked about that. But God says it again at this battle. He's like, this is not a battle for you to go make yourself rich. As we know, wars are fought usually because you want, there's a cost, but you're doing it for the the price of victory. And God says, this is not a battle to make you rich, to make yourself famous. This is just dealing with a problem you gotta deal with, so don't take anything home. Just leave it, you're not taking anything. So Saul takes his army and they go, and sure enough, as God had said, they have victory. But instead of listening to God completely, Saul decides that, you know what's a great thing for a king to have? Another king is a trophy. I mean, what makes you feel better in the morning as yourself as king than when you wake up and, hey, there's that guy, I conquered you, didn't I? Yeah, I'm awesome. He wants a trophy. So verse 9, Saul and his men spared Agag, that's the enemy king's life, and they kept the best of the sheep and goats, the cattle, the fat calves, and the lambs, everything, in fact, that appealed to them. They destroyed only what was worthless or of poor quality. That wasn't the point. You were not supposed to bring anything back. It was supposed to be all done. But Saul starts it by bringing back his trophy king. And the rest of the people, like, well, hey, if he's getting something, I mean, we did a lot of work, might as well, at least, we're not going to take everything, we're not going to get rich, but I mean, a little cut's not going to hurt, right? Just, I mean, if, if I don't like it, who wants, to, who wants to lug a bunch of stuff home? So if it's no good, leave it. If it's great, take it. But God sees and says to Samuel, I am sorry that I ever made Saul king. For he has not been loyal to me and has refused to obey my command. And Samuel, as a good man that we've seen that he is, was so deeply moved when he heard this that he cried out to the Lord all night. And I can't imagine Samuel thinking, you know, when I was a boy, I got a message from God at night, a message of judgment for somebody who refused to listen when God had given him multiple chances. I hoped I was done with those kind of messages, but now here he is as an old man hearing the same thing about this man Saul who he had invested in. So early the next morning, Samuel went to find Saul. And someone told him, Saul went to the town of Carmel to set up a monument to himself. Then he went on to Gilgal. Trophy kings, plunder, and a monument to his own greatness. So Samuel keeps on searching. And when Samuel finally found him, Saul greeted him cheerfully. May the Lord bless you. I've carried out the Lord's command. It's good to see you, buddy. Did everything God told me. It's fantastic. Thanks for your advice. Appreciate it. And I imagine that Samuel did something that's not dissimilar to those of us who have had to deal with kids. And when when you have kids, whether they're your own or ones that you're watching, and you go in a room and they're excited to see you. I mean, 
not excited. They are way too excited. Hey, I'm so glad you're here. Don't go in that room. I'm glad you're right here right now. It's good to see you. Yeah, everything's fine. Nothing got broken. I mean, nothing. Everything is fine. I think Samuel just takes a moment and he's just like, you know that head tilt you do when you're listening and you hear something that you shouldn't hear? And then you make eye contact and you stop for a second and you're like, Samuel says, uh, okay, well then, what is all the bleeding of sheep and goats and the lowing of cattle I hear? What about that? And Saul says, well, it's true. I mean, the army, you know, those guys. Um, well, they spared the best of the sheep, goats, and cattle. Um, but they are going to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. We've destroyed everything else. Good news, Samuel. I know no, it wasn't exactly the way you said, but hey, remember you're the priest, right? You love God. You love all the sacrifices. It's kind of how you get your pay. That's how God has set up the system. You get a little cut because all great news, you're about to have a great offering this Sunday. I mean, it's going to be fantastic. There's going to be so much. Isn't that awesome? I mean, all the stuff that you wouldn't have liked anyway. It would be horrible. You wouldn't have liked it. We got rid of those. But we got all the good stuff. Win-win. And as he's in the middle of this pre-rehearsed, probably, thing, Samuel looks at him and says, stop. I hate that. You ever have a really good story? You've worked on it the whole time. This is like, I know, they're going to say this, I'm going to say this, this is how it's going to go, and you've got this whole script rehearsed and you're doing it, you got a straight face and then he's like, stop. Listen to what the Lord told me last night. I imagine Saul's face fell. What did he tell you? And Samuel told him, although you may think little of yourself, are you not the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord has anointed you, king of Israel. So you keep telling me about the army, them, the people, everybody else. But you're the king. You're the leader. You're in charge. What you do matters. How you lead matters. You can't just look at yourself in this moment, Saul, and say, well, I mean, yeah, but... I'm just one guy, right? What can I do? Samuel is telling Saul, you may see yourself as small, but your actions have a big impact. Saul, we're, we're, we're done with this now. We're, this isn't, you aren't the guy hiding anymore. You aren't the one guy who wasn't sure you wanted this job. You've got it, and you're happy that you've got it because you are enjoying all the perks you can't then turn around now and say, well, it's, it doesn't really matter. See, so what you do affects more than just you. Because you decided, you just brought home one. You got one trophy. You got your king that you brought with. But because of that, now all the people are doing wrong too. It's not just that they took stuff. It's that they disobeyed God's command and they were encouraged to do it by your actions as the leader. And now all of you are going to have to deal with this. You can't get out of this, Saul, by saying, well, it doesn't really matter, because it does. Samuel continues, why haven't you obeyed the Lord? Why did you rush for the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? But Saul's not done arguing. But I, but I did obey the Lord. 
I carried out the mission he gave me. Okay, so I brought back a king, one person, one thing. But I, everybody else is gone. Everybody else is done. I didn't, I didn't bring back anything else. And then, again, my troops brought in the best of the sheep, goats, cattle, and plunder to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Samuel, I don't think you're listening to this. It, this is so much better than you're trying to put it in a box. Yeah, I didn't do exactly everything you said, but, I mean, again, I get a trophy king, just one. That's all I wanted. They get a bunch of things. They feel successful. Don't you want people to feel good about themselves? We're going to sacrifice them. You're happy. God's happy because he loves the sacrifices. Everybody wins. Why are you so hurt? Why are you so bummed about this? Can't God just be happy for me? Can't he just do what I want? And if I don't do right, I'll, I'll just give him a nod to make him happy. After all, doesn't God want us to just do the rituals? He wrote a whole book telling us how to do the rituals. I got in trouble because I tried to do the rituals. I'll just do more rituals and make him happy. What could be better than that? But Samuel replied, what is more pleasing to the Lord? What do you think, Saul? What do you think makes God happy? Your burnt offerings and your sacrifices? Or your obedience to his voice? Listen. Obedience is better than sacrifice. And submission is better than offering the fat of rams. Rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft. If you know Saul's story, that's foreshadowing. And stubbornness is as bad as worshiping idols. So because you have rejected the command of the Lord, he's rejected you as king. Saul, you got to listen, Samuel says. You think it's just, I did a little bit. I didn't do it all the way. What you're saying, Saul, is when it's a choice between what God says is right and what I want to do, I'm going to pick me. Saul, you're worshiping an idol. You're putting something in front of God's place in your life. You don't think it's bad because you're not going to take all these things and sacrifice them to another God, but you've already sacrificed something to another God. That God is you. You've sacrificed to yourself. God isn't happy, Saul. God isn't happy when we make mistakes and then do some kind of repentance or act of contrition. That's not the moment that God is happy. It's not the act of repentance. It's not paying your debt that makes God happy. It's when you do what's right in the first place because then you don't have to deal with the consequences of the bad actions. That's the part that makes God happy. Yes, repentance makes God happy because it's when you decide to stop doing that and come back to him because he knows what's best. He knows what's right and he loves you and wants your life to go well. Not that it's easy or perfect, but he doesn't want you compounding the difficulty of life with the consequences of bad decisions. Then Saul admitted to Samuel, yes, I've sinned. I have disobeyed your instructions and the, Lord, the Lord's command. For I was afraid of the people and did what they demanded. But now, please, forgive my sin. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel replied, I will not go back with you. Since you have rejected the Lord's command, he has rejected you as king of Israel. He repeats himself basically at the end. Saul, I don't think you're listening. It's over. God's done. 
this isn't you get another chance. God's, get, God's a God of second and third and multiple chances, but you, you've just, you're done. Not as a person, not as the love of God, but your position as king, it's coming to an end. And you wonder why, though, why won't Samuel go back? Because, I mean, every Sunday in church, right, we talk about if you've gone away from God, come back, he loves you. But Samuel doesn't go back. Was it because God was done or because Saul hadn't quite gotten it right? We're going to see in a moment that Saul's biggest desire was not in this moment to honor God, but to keep his own honor and his own position in the eyes of the people. Because you see, if it becomes public that Samuel's not happy, perhaps his kingdom's in danger a little earlier than he would like. And before we read these next couple of verses, I want to restate in our minds so we know exactly the weight and the gravity of this next moment. I want you to remember what we've seen about Saul already. He's a very, very large man, head and shoulders above everybody else at one point. He's a warrior king in the prime of his life. He is incredibly big, incredibly strong, and incredibly powerful, not just physically, but politically. Samuel's life in the physical realm depends on Saul's mercy because he's the king. He could kill Samuel. It may not go over well, but who's going to challenge him? And Samuel, by contrast, is an older man. He describes himself as being old and gray-haired. He's tired, not as big, and not as strong as Saul. And so in this moment, Samuel is done trying to convince Saul of his errors he goes to turn away. Verse 27, but as Samuel turned to go, Saul tried to hold him back and tore the hem of his robe. Picture this. Big, strong king grabbing Samuel's robe to keep him as Samuel fights to pull away. And the struggle is so intense that his clothes tear, which would have enormous significance that we don't have time for. And probably feeling the pressure and the emotional weight of that moment and the stress of what's this guy going to do to me, Samuel turns around and says to Saul, over the ripping of the clothes, the Lord has torn the kingdom from you and has given it to someone else, one who is better than you. And he is the glory of Israel, will not lie nor will he change his mind because he's not human that he should change his mind. And I'm guessing that the words echoed for a moment, not just in this moment, but in Saul's mind for years because imagine somebody looking at you in whatever moment of glory you think you have as the king and saying, somebody's better than you. But that was the problem all along. Because Saul may have been the king, but he had stopped being a good man. And he had failed to learn the lesson that Samuel had tried to teach him, that who you are is more important than what you are. Saul had spent years and years and time of his life trying to protect his kingdom, his honor, his position, his stability, his reputation in the eyes of the people, his 
position of status above the elders. Everything went into preserving his place as king. But he had stopped working on the who he was inside. That man who knew enough to say, it's not about me in this moment. It's about all of us. My job's just to lead. All of that went away and he stopped working on who he was because he was too preoccupied with what he was. And at this point, yeah, Saul, you're the king. Congratulations on your position. But you're not a good one. Saul doesn't get it, though. Verse 30, Saul pleaded again, I know I've sinned, but please at least honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel by coming back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. Fine, fine, I don't, I don't care. I don't, I don't want to be good anyway. I just want to be who I am. Just at least give me that. So Samuel finally agreed and went back with him and Saul worshiped the Lord. But I'm sure it wasn't a good entry. I mean, I don't know how many or a few people were around, but I'm sure they weren't walking back in and looking all happy. Saul may have been trying to put on a good face, but you could see the stress in his eyes. And Samuel looks defeated, and his robe is torn. The whispers around the camp must have been crazy. This moment of celebration, those two don't look happy. We find out, verse 35, that Samuel never went to meet with Saul again, but he mourned constantly for him. And the Lord was sorry. That he had ever made Saul the king of Israel. Saul struggled with insecurity. Mentally, emotionally, relationally. I mean, he was really ready to kill his own son or some ridiculous slight. And spiritually, he was never able to rest in what and who God had made him to be. And because of that, he could never rest easily and trust God's purpose and direction. It's what honestly, ultimately took him from being a promising hero to a petulant king. And as we'll see in the weeks to come, a pitiful villain, a side character to a greater story. Why? Well, he failed to learn two important lessons that Samuel the prophet tried to teach him. First was this, what you do affects more than just you. It affects you. It had an effect on Saul's life. But it affected everybody around him. It carried over. And we understand this. We live in a world that we experience the collective consequences of our own bad decisions. If you don't live by yourself, even if you do, but especially if you live with other people, you experience together the collective consequences of your decisions. We know this, that what we do affects more than just you. But Saul forgot that there's this, the flip side to that, that the good things that you do can affect more than you as well. When he was a good king, it turned out well. But he forgot and he became so self-centered and worried about himself that he forgot that his actions mattered. And he forgot that who you are is more important than what you are. And again, we understand this, we know this. None of us want to get to the end of our lives and have people say in memorial of us, I mean, they accomplished a lot. I mean, they weren't really a good person, nobody liked being around them, but they did a lot. I mean, that's, you could say that for them. 
If that's the best people say about us at the end, it's not a full life. It's not a complete life. We wouldn't be happy at that moment with that. But you know what you can live with? Yeah, he never made it everything that he had hoped to be. But I'll tell you what, he was a good dad. She was a good mom. They were a good spouse. They were a good grandpa, grandma. Best boss I ever had. Or I remember having a teacher in this grade. They were awesome. Those are the moments that matter. When we take more seriously who we are inside than what the position is that we hold. Pastor I follow has a quote about character and competency. He says, your competency will get you there. But it's your character that will keep you there. Because it's as the weight and pressures of life, the more that we achieve and the more that we accomplish, it crushes and goes against the structure of what we have. And if we haven't built up inside, we collapse. Because who you are is more important than what you are. And it's a tragic tale in the life of King Saul. But the good news is for us, we have a different king. We have a king who decided that what he was king of kings, was not as important as who we needed him to be. Because the story of the gospel is the story of a king who is willing to set aside all of that. He'll get it later. Because it was more important to be who he needed to be for us. That's why we're here. Why else would we be here on a beautiful Sunday morning in the middle of the summer? It's because somebody took more account of who he needed to be than what he needed to be. He was willing to stop being a king and be a servant to be our savior. That's why we'll sing in a little bit, there is a king. All our worship will belong to him forever. Why? Because he was so worried about being king? No, because he was willing to set that aside and treat us as more important. And what he did affected more than just him. It affected us. That's the message of the gospel, and that's what he calls us to today. You want to make the world better? You want to leave it better? Try putting aside yourself like our king did. Work on who you are. Work on the what you do, not what you want to be. That's why messages like being for Cedar Lake matter, showing that people we're for them because God is for them and he loves them. It's our way of following in his footsteps, of understanding the kind of people to be. It's this lesson that Saul never learned. And spoiler alert, not too much, but in the weeks to come, we'll see that God found somebody who could fill that role. Somebody who is more worried about other people than his own greatness. And that's the reason God said, I want somebody after my own heart. Somebody that's willing to look after other people and go be who they need to be. And that's what he calls us to today. Let's pray.